This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, everybody who is watching World Affairs is primarily looking at the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin. But one of the consequences of that invasion, and indeed what the ultimate outcome of that invasion is, will have an impact, where many believe, on China's attitude towards Taiwan, which the Chinese regard with increasing hostility as Taiwan being an a part of China and that the unity of Taiwan and China must be restored. And President Xi Jinping, who is now effectively president of the Chinese Communist Party, probably for life, has been increasingly bullish in his approach to Taiwan. And we're joined now from Taiwan by William Yang, journalist and regular contributor to The Stand. William, there was a news yesterday of an agreement signed, a defense agreement signed between the British and Japanese. I know that's not hugely significant, but it is interesting that the British and Japanese are conscious of the new Chinese aggression. Have you felt much of that aggression? I note, for example, that your government has increased national service to one year, and appear to be getting ready for Chinese aggression. Yes, uh, Iman, I think actually the every recent move made by the Japanese, uh, including increasing their defense budget to record high and also revealing their national security, national defense strategies uh, late last year, and then also the agreement that you just mentioned, uh, and then leading up to Taiwan's own defense uh, increase. These are all very important signs in recent months that the countries in this part of the world, in the Indo-Pacific, and especially in the neighborhood that China has really been expanding its military activities, have really been taking the threat from China more seriously. Uh, And it's really led by uh, the fact that China has not stopped or de-escalate its uh, frequency of its uh, military provocation. We saw late last year in December uh, that there were 71 Chinese fighter jets uh, 
float flew into or around the area of Taiwan. And then just last week, there was also 59 Chinese uh, military aircraft conducting basically the same thing. And what this uh, is different from the past is that in the past, uh, these military aircraft usually only flew into the air def defense identification zone, which is still a little distance from Taiwan. Yes. But nowadays, more and more of these uh, aircraft are flying across the median line of the Taiwan Strait, which is essentially redefining the status quo across the Taiwan Strait. And I think this move by China is not only viewed as a threat by Taiwan, but also by neighboring countries. And Japan and the Philippines have both recently been uh, engaging in very deep and uh, very high-level talks with the United States to increase bilateral security uh, collaboration. So I think these are all signs that China's threat is now being viewed wider in the region, apart from just uh, being viewed as a direct threat by Taiwan. Yes, and I mean, the Biden administration has been strong in its position um, on Taiwan, and although there is no explicit agreement that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense, there is an understanding. Let me ask you about the change in the House of Representatives, uh, the Congress, last week. And it is now effectively controlled by a group of hardline Trumpists who will have the deciding say in any policy. One of their big complaints is that a the United States is spending too much money in Ukraine, that it doesn't need to be there, and that they are really isolationists, which, as you know, I'm sure, mean that it's America first. Make America great again doesn't necessarily translate to defend freedom, whether it's in Ukraine or Taiwan. I take it you and your people are watching that situation in the United States. Yes, exactly. I think, uh, just like you mentioned, I think even though traditionally the Republican controlled Congress would have favored Taiwan a lot yes. more compared to a Democrat controlled House. But, you know, in, since Trump came to power, we saw this inconsistency and a lot of the times the, uh, basically unconventional move that they made, uh, in terms of foreign policy and how they decide to, uh, provoke or make some moves that essentially will be viewed as uh, controversial in uh, around the world by partners in Europe or even here in Asia. So, you know, while Kevin McCarthy has publicly made it very clear that he also intended to come and visit Taiwan once he becomes the House Speaker, and he did. But uh, the question remains, the consistency and the very, I think, uh, uh, I think, a uh, principled support that we have been seeing from the United States under the Biden administration over the last two years, whether that is going to be continued or not, that still remains a big question mark. Because like you said, uh, the, ha the new House uh, representative is basically now um, very confused and they don't have a consensus on the agenda. So whether foreign policy is going to be more important or domestic uh, issues is going to be prioritized, we will have to see as they move forward. But I think one thing that we can keep in mind is that uh, it's very clear that in 
at least the last five to ten years, China has replaced Russia to become viewed as the biggest threat by、yes. uh, American politicians. Uh, bipartisan. There is a bipartisan consensus that、uh, China's threat should be prioritized over any kind of threat. So when it comes to that, I think maybe Taiwanese people can rest a little bit assured that the issue of Taiwan is going to remain very high on the agenda. And the other、uh, information that is going to maybe console Taiwanese people a little bit is the fact that there have been a lot of talks. That the GOP's 2024 presidential campaign,、uh, even during the primary, is going to, for the first time, put the issue of Taiwan on the agenda. I think that's unprecedented.、Yes. So if we look at that within the、uh, Republican Party, maybe the issue of Taiwan is not going to be overshadowed. But the approach that they are going to use to tackle and to handle the issue of Taiwan remains a big question mark, and that could have a lot of implications about how China is going to respond. Yes,、uh, I noted a speech made by your president, President Chai, in December, and she said. That peace will not drop from the sky. Taiwan, she said, is on the front line of authoritarian expansion, and the implication of that really that authoritarian expansion it it is really a growing standoff between the law-abiding, free democracies in the world and the places like Russia, China, Iran. And the Middle East, the Saudis, and all of that. There is a feeling that there is a hardening of attitudes on both sides of that. And of course, Taiwan is on the front line because China is so powerful. How has that changed in your mind, William, and in the minds of your fellow countrymen and women over the last ten years? Are you more worried now than you were? Ten years ago, and just as well as that,、uh, a second question,、uh, and I think we've talked about this before. How important is it that Putin does not win in his invasion and war on Ukraine? So I, I would like to, I think, go back to one of the most、uh, important line that the former NATO、uh, Secretary General Rasmussen said、uh, just two weeks ago when he was here in Taipei. He exactly pointed out what you said is that it's going to be very important for the democracies to ensure that Putin didn't win because、yes. if he wins, that is going to send a very strong signal to the rest of the autocratic countries、yes. around the world, especially Beijing and Pyongyang, because、uh, that is going to be viewed as an example that autocratic and very,、uh, I think, my forceful. Annexation of the、uh, territory of another、uh, sovereign country is going to be accepted, and the fact is that if the democ- democratic countries cannot respond in a very resolute, strong, forceful, and united way, that will also be viewed as p- a potential factor. Uh, that is going to fall into the calculation of Beijing when they consider the timeline for their、yes. own invasion of Taiwan.、Uh, and then I think another thing over here is that I think over the last ten years, while the level of concern I would say certainly has increased 
but it's not reaching the level of panicking yet. Yes. But at the same time, what is、uh, accompanying that rising level of concern is also the rising level of awareness among the Taiwanese people about the need for us to really defend ourselves and to look inward. At the problems that have been existing in Taiwan's own defense system and the national security、uh, strategy over the last few decades, because clearly,、uh, in during the early 2000s, from 2008、uh, until 2016, that was a long period where Taiwan was actually heading in a very different direction than how where it is heading in now. At the time, Taiwan actually was、uh, believing and embracing in the spirit that. Uh, Taiwan should just completely move into the voluntary-based military service and、uh, abolish the entire conscription、yes. because they believe that peace is the key to ensure the stability and the status quo of the Taiwan Strait. And at the time, it was、uh, still in between the former、uh, Chinese leader Hu Jintao, and、uh, and then. But once Xi Jinping came into power after the first four years, I think Taiwan has seen a very significant change in the direction and the mindset over there in Beijing. So、yes. since Taiwan came to power, her government immediately、uh, started the whole conversation within the、uh, government with the military to talk about the need. To bring back this、uh, one-year conscription, and so that led to what we saw last month, which is very important: the announcement of Taiwan's、uh, reverse of going back to the one-year service, which I actually personally did、uh, in about a almost a decade ago, and that was a very different era、uh, in Taiwan. At the time, I was one of the last few that still had to serve in that one-year military service. But then now we are seeing Taiwan going back to that,、uh, and you can already see within just the last ten years there have been such big debate and big、uh, like swing. But the Fundamental factor that is causing this swing is because of the change in Beijing's attitude, rather than the decision that is unilaterally made by Taiwan that we will just want to beef up our own defense. If there is no existing and growing threat coming from the other side, I think Taiwan will still be sticking with the、uh, philosophy that peace is the fundamental. Factor and the fundamental way to res、uh, to resolve the any differences across the Taiwan Strait, but now it's very clear that、uh, that should not be the only way. Taiwan should also look into and also beef up、uh, its own defense capabilities, just because、uh, we are dealing with a lot more uncertainty moving forward. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Let me ask you about the COVID outbreak in China and how damaged President Xi Jinping is or not. But we are reporting in our newspapers here and in Britain and in Europe indeed that this has been very damaging for President Xi. It has weakened him a little bit and certainly embarrassed him. Is that your uh, view of it, William? I would say this uh, is definitely a very pivotal moment that the Chinese leadership, Xi Jinping himself, didn't see it coming. Uh, the protest was really the last straw that forced him, to, for the first time since he came into power over the last 10 years, that he had to publicly reverse and completely yes. drop a flagship policy that he has been championing over the last three years. So I think you're right that uh, the public image of Xi Jinping, you know, as an invincible and uh, like leader that should not be questioned, definitely was very tested uh, in late November and into December. And then that's why we saw this abrupt policy U-turn where they did not even prepare with the government or the community or with the population and the society, no one was prepared for this entire uh, sudden U-turn and the sudden drop of it, and which led to this uh, very quick surge of the local domestic cases. And then uh, also the rising concerns among uh, different countries. Once China announced that they were going to drop and reopen their border on January 8th, and then I think that led to a lot of the debate among different countries in the United States and the UK and also in the European Union and also here in Japan and South Korea, where, you know, countries are debating whether they should have any precaution being taken. And we see most of the countries uh, citing scientific data and scientific proof and evidence to Im implement this uh, pre-flight 48-hour uh, negative test result yes. as a prerequisite for most of the Chinese uh, travelers to arrive. And then obviously we see how the Chinese government reacted in a very angry way yesterday when they announced that they're suspending all the issuing of the short-term visas for South Korean and Japanese uh, travelers. 
But then, you know, that I think just make all of us wonder again, why only South Korea and Japan? Maybe it's because there are some foreign policy calculation in Beijing that it's more important for Beijing to maintain a good or relationship or don't escalate the tension between Beijing and Brussels and Beijing and Washington so that they target countries in the yes. neighborhood uh, that they consider as countries that have less leverage to really challenge and stand up to Beijing. And so I think uh, this is very interesting how, you know, the a decision and the insistence over the last three years that, uh, you know, on the zero COVID and then they missed the best timing to pivot towards living with the virus. And all of a sudden, the yes. whole, I think, aftermath of that and how it's be being played out right now, there's still a lot of political factors in it, even if China is calling on all other countries to not try to, you know, view this as anything po politicizing uh, this whole, I think, uh, pandemic that is still ongoing in China, but they are also the one that is clearly viewing this and uh, using a lot of retaliations with a lot of political implications. Is it clear yet how the reversal of the COVID policy is going to work, uh, or will it work, or is there some uncertainty and danger left in this situation for President Xi? I think over time, we are slowly seeing the number in China uh, dropping over the last week. Right. But at the same time, we know that uh, the first wave uh, started in the urban centers where the healthcare system is still relatively okay, or at least there is still some capacity where they can deal with the uh very sudden rise and surge of the number of patients. But even in Beijing and Shanghai, we see that the uh, cre like cremation and the funeral homes are very struggling dealing with the number of bodies that they have to uh, cremate every day. Yes, and then, we've seen those pictures. And at, right. the, at the same time, the Chinese government is saying maybe 50 people died <laughs> this week, uh, which is right, clearly exactly. not true. Yes, because every day each funeral home probably had more than 50 bodies over the last almost month. And then now leading up to the Lunar New Year, we are already starting at the beginning of the whole cross-country migration during the Lunar New Year. And the concern is now going to be in the rural area where the uh, not only the uh, healthcare system is very fragile. There are not enough uh, trained medical and qualified medical uh, personnel that could potentially deal with the, in, the the sharp rise of the potential cases over there. And with the uh, move across the country that is going to happen, the Chinese government obviously is also very worried about it. Some Chinese people are still very cautious and deciding that at the last minute they are not going to embark on this cross-country trip, even though they have not been able to do that over the last three years. But they decided to stay where they are and just see how this is going to play out. So I think there is still a lot of concern and uh, this potentially the current pandemic and the outbreak uh, inside China will have to drag on at least for another month or two after the Chinese New Year. So essentially, I think uh, 
by mid-March or late March, that's when the experts are uh, estimating that the numbers are going to really finally drop significantly. But we just don't know because, you know, at this point, the numbers and the data that the Chinese government is just, they're just not sharing anything. They're no longer updating the world about the real scale of the outbreak over there. So I think that's also something that the World Health Organization and other Western countries have been pushing China, but so far they have not given in. And also it's said that the Chinese vaccine is not as good as the Western vaccines and also that many elderly or older people in China are not vaccinated, which of course increases dramatically the possibility of fatalities. Right, exactly. I think uh, you also pointed out something very important, the vaccination rate and the efficacy of the vaccine, even though yes. China is finally uh, approving the uh, clinical trials for their domestically manufactured mRNA vaccine. But we all know how long these trials will take. So by the time that even these uh, vaccines get approved, you know, the outbreak would have already developed to a level where it's just very hard for us to foresee right now. But at the same time, the Chinese government is not barging and giving in to the uh, willingness from different Western countries and governments to donate mRNA vaccines manufactured by Western pharmaceutical companies. And the talk between uh, Pfizer and the Chinese government regarding some of the medications that will be necessary to treat some uh, serious symptom patients they also cannot agree on the prices. So we just see this very bizarre uh, situation where somehow the Chinese government doesn't seem uh, feeling comfortable enough to let down their guard regarding yes. these Western medicines. But at the same time, their own development and the timeline of that is just completely lagging behind the trajectory of the development of this outbreak. So I think they are still not out of the woods there. They're still very deep in the woods, and we still have to pay very close attention to how this outbreak is going to play out, even if the... Uh, percentage of their natural immunity is rising as the uh, millions of Chinese people are supposedly being infected by the uh, coronavirus right now. When you're looking at China from uh, Taipei, from uh, the capital of Taiwan, uh, when the Taiwanese people look at China, and more importantly, perhaps, when the Chinese people look at Taiwan, which is a successful and free democracy. It's said that what was driving Vladimir Putin crazy was the idea that Ukraine would become a free democratic state functioning well because it would be right next door to Russia and Russian people would say, we'd like some of that for ourselves. Is it the case that Chinese people, that at the, at the core of the Chinese Communist Party's concern is the idea that Taiwan is such a successful society and the COVID thing might be another sign of it, but it is a successful free democracy and therefore a danger. I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, that's the shared concern among all autocratic leaders. Their insecurity usually comes from a, you know, close by 
country yes. that uh, shared a lot of, I think, uh, history, culture, language with the people inside the country that they're trying to tighten the control over. And so obviously they are really concerned about those mirror and spillover effects of anything that might actually contradict about the policy that is being imposed in China. And, uh, you know, so I think you are right about, you know, pointing out the concern that may might be underlying a lot of the decisions and a lot, a lot of the moves that Beijing decided to adopt over the last, uh, you know, 10, 20 years. And as Xi Jinping moved into his third term starting 2023, uh, we are... I think going to probably see a lot more of those forceful and provocative response from China from time to time. And uh, that is also going to, I think, couple with uh, whether he feels uh, secure enough uh, when it comes to his own control over the Chinese society. And obviously, I think uh, how Taiwan, the trajectory of Taiwan's development is going to play a big part in terms of where he, how he really feels and how he really views the yes. stability of his own control. Yeah, just a final point on that, William. The example of Hong Kong, how President Xi moved ruthlessly. He didn't allow for any opposition. The British, who had a deal with him, they did nothing. And that was weakness. Well, can I put it to you that that looked like weakness on the part of the West, in, in this case, particularly the British, that uh, she could just tear up the agreement, walk in, arrest people, many, many hundreds of thousands, I believe, young people leaving Hong Kong to go to Britain. All of that might have encouraged President Xi to think Taiwan will be the same? Or am I wrong about that? I think maybe before, you know, the 2019 and before the election here in Taiwan in 2020, yes. that is probably the original uh, calculation and the playbook that he has uh, in his mind. Yes. But, you know, I think ever since that election result, which I think shocked him and the entire... Uh, Chinese leadership, and then looking at the constant uh, poll that comes out of Taiwan, suggesting that Taiwanese people are not feeling any more, you know, uh, they're not falling any closer towards China, but rather they are pushing yes. themselves further away from China. So they realize that the way that they handle the entire protest situation in Hong Kong actually created this counter effect uh, in the case of Taiwan. So yes. I think right now uh, what Beijing probably is feeling is they're very puzzled and struggling to come up with a, I think, strategy that they can convince themselves that it will work as a way for them to fulfill this uh, ultimate goal of reuniting Taiwan with China. So right now they have a very bad read on the uh, status quo and the situation and the mentality in the atmosphere over here in Taiwan because there is no official exchange. And at the same time, uh, both sides, I think, of the Taiwan Strait is also feeling very, I think, uh, unsure 
about how the other side is really yes. thinking and what are the strategies that the other side is going to adopt. Which I think is why a lot of the experts and I think analysts are raising the concern that、uh, when there is very little official communication, a lot more uncertainty can、yes. be created, and、yes. that can lead to miscalculation in all kinds of way.、Yes. And when that is the case, that's when they say that these might just be the sources of any potential. A military conflict that maybe no side is prepared, but all of a sudden it just happened because of the lack of、uh, clarity、yes. from both sides. Okay, William,、uh, thank you very much. We never.、Uh, I just want this to be a last、uh, question. When the House of Representatives Speaker at the time, Nancy Pelosi, we were on holiday in August when she visited Taiwan. Personally, looking at it, I thought that's a pretty provocative thing to do. Was it welcomed by the people of Taiwan that she came? So obviously, a lot of people in the West thought it was grandstanding and not very sensible. What did the Taiwanese people think? I think the Taiwanese people felt like、uh, her visit is still a very important moment. Right. To bring all the global attention to Taiwan, yes, and it's also a very important、uh, moment for the bilateral relationship. Yes, even if it means that,、uh, you know, the subsequent pressure coming from China is rising. But I think more people over here view the、uh, trip as a necessary move by Washington, so that you know. It created a lot more discussion and attention, and I think interest on how each country, each region, should play a role in this、yes. Taiwan Strait situation or the potential Taiwan Strait crisis.、Yes. And then I think、uh, so. Overall, if you ask people here right now, you know, for more than five months after her visit. They would still be thinking that the trip is necessary and the trip is the right move. Okay, William.、Uh, as always, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Wish you a happy new year again, and thank you very much for joining us. That's William Yang. We're grateful to William, as always, to you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. It's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands, and they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince dot com slash style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty five day returns on your next order. Quince dot com slash style.